Hello coaches, welcome back to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Today is the first of what I hope will be many conversations with experts relevant to the college coaching world moving forward and what a guest we have to get things started. I'm sure many of you already know who Dr. Jim Lauer is and have read his books for many years, but if not, here's a brief introduction. Dr. Jim Lauer is a world-renowned performance psychologist and author of 16 books. Dr. Lauer has worked with hundreds of world-class performers from the arenas of sport, business, medicine, and law enforcement. He is well known in the tennis industry for his work with Grand Slam champions such as Jim Courier, Monica Sellers, and Arantxa Sanchez Ricario. He is also the co-founder of the Johnson & Johnson Human Performance Institute, which delivers a science-based energy management training solution to a wide array of industry leaders, including 25 of the Fortune 100 companies, Olympic gold medalists, and the Special Forces. Please excuse the less than stellar sound quality. Jim and I did our best from our home offices, but we're eager to get this conversation out to coaches as soon as possible, given our current circumstances. Either way, I'm sure you'll enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jim Lauer. Dr. Jim Lauer, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Thank you, David. It's great uh, to be with you. I hope I can and really create some value for all of your coaches. Oh, I have no doubt that you will. I, I, on behalf of the college tennis coaches around the country, I know we're all honored to have you on this podcast and, and excited to learn from you. So you, you speak a lot about and write about the, the power of story. So with college tennis uh, season ending abruptly just a few weeks ago and senior seasons being cut short, um, also the uncertainty around the economy and potential impact on college tennis moving forward, what stories should coaches be telling themselves and the athletes that they coach yeah you know i i have a favorite quote and i'd like to kind of preface my answer with this quote and the, the quote is that history will be kind to me for i intend to write it hmm. and that's a quote by winston churchill and uh you know i've learned that the most important thing that one can do in a crisis or really protracted uh, form of adversity is to create a great story. But we have to get our story straight or it can literally be a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. I've learned that our stories in so many ways become our destiny. So this is a very special time. I mean, it's a harrowing time on many levels for, for everyone. And there's some, some things we learned over the years that really are important in any great story, a story that can really, really change the outcome of your life. And the first one is the story has to be grounded in truth. It has to be reality-based. Um, and the reality is that we're under siege. This is not some make-believe um, pandemic. This is a real pandemic, and it threatens almost everything that we hold of great value in our lives. And so we, we need to face the truth. This is a real deal. It's a real crisis. Mm -hmm. And another important element, whenever you're writing this story, and I really got to encourage people to write this out in longhand um, to really get the story right, it should reflect your deepest values and um, the central purpose you have in your life. What you would say is the most important enduring purpose that you must really you must really fulfill that purpose or your life will not have been a real success. Mm. 
every great story, the core of it, is a great sense of purpose. And, uh, and that purpose will give you the sense of why. why. Why is it so important that you fight now? Why should you give everything you possibly have to make sure that this turns out in the best way possible? Mm-hmm. And that story should also instill a great sense of hope. You know, if we don't have hope and a real sense of optimism, but a realistic optimism, you know, we can't move forward. So we really have to have a genuine, real, grounded sense of hope. That story should also inspire you, inspire you to take action, to resolve, to do the things that you have control over and let the rest go. We need inspiration and you need, you need inspiration for yourself and all those, all the players that you are leading um, and all those families that actually are involved in, in those players. Mm-hmm. And the last thing is that you really need to align your most precious resource. And I've always said the most precious resource we all have is our energy. Um, and you want to, because it's with energy that we fight. If you don't have energy, we're kind of, we're done. And so we want that story that you're crafting to be infused with great energy and you become fully engaged with that story. And uh, it brings to life, it becomes the lens through which you interpret any part of this maddening and and frightening pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a, you know, a really great question to ask yourself um, as a coach is how do I want to show up in this storm? What kind of legacy do I want to leave behind me? Because this is going to be something that everyone will remember for the rest of their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I want you to put that down. I want you to clearly write how you want to be remembered. How do you want to show up when, um, when this is all said and done? That it will be, this virus will be defeated, but we don't know, uh, how long it will take or, the damage that will ultimately be done. Right. And you know, it's interesting. We all, we all possess kind of a negativity bias. Our, our ancestors survived <laughs> uh, by, by looking at, you know, what, what are the dangers out there? Mm-hmm. And that they were far and few between at those times. Mm. Um, and, but now this, this is everywhere. Um, this bias that we're wired neurologically to, to tend to those negative experiences and the feedback. And we've got to figure out a way to break it. And with the right story, we can do it. We've, we've got to really turn this into something we can control and reduce our sense of negativity and the sense that uh, this is going to be something that we cannot recover from. So those are the elements of a, of a great story that I would have all of them put in writing and get it down and work on that every day. Read it and constantly refine it. Okay. And would you encourage them to share it with their with their team even? Or is it just something for themselves to, to remind themselves on and refine, like you said, on a daily basis? Well, I would, uh, I would let that uh, be uh, the decision that each of them, because it might get quite personal. Mm-hmm. But there are, certainly, there are certain elements that I would really feel important to share with their team. And I would suggest that they do this once they've done this and find it really helpful for them. I would have each of the team members 
write their own stories. Mm. And then in a team meeting, maybe have those players actually, you know, tell their stories about how they want to show up, who they want to be, and what's the best way to, you know, create a sense of why, a fighting spirit, inspiration. Do that with the players as well. And it will help them deal with this in a constructive way. And they'll never forget it. Mm. And in the future, and all, we all will have crises in our lives, this will be a template for how you, how all of the players, how the team will deal with crisis in the future. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's maybe writing a story for what we're, we're dealing with now. But like you said, once we get through this, there will be other things that arise in, in a coach's life. And maybe it's refining that story and, and shifting it a little bit as, as we work towards the next crisis and how we want to show up in, in that. But there's, there's lessons to be learned now is what you're saying that, that we can apply later. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so how would you also, we, we talk about leadership and, and, you know, we talk about how really anybody can lead when, when things are going well, it's during the bad times that, that the real leaders emerge, but how could college coaches not only be leaders for the, their teams, but maybe within their athletic departments, within their communities, and, and even for the sport and tennis in general. Is there anything you think they could be doing uh, above and beyond right now to um, to help in this moment? Yeah, no, I totally agree that uh, real leaders emerge when um, things are really uh, treacherous, when things are really, really um, challenging, um, and particularly when it's life-threatening. Um, and if leadership is needed, it's needed in this moment. And this is the time, regardless of how gut-wrenching this might be, that your leadership is needed. And uh, so I, I really begin this leadership um, kind of challenge by starting with yourself. And again, it's similar to the question that I just asked about how you want to show up. What kind of leader do you want to be? in this time of crisis. Um, we need leaders where everyone else um, is kind of panicking and just, uh, you know, really looking at nothing but the negative side of this. You need to lead, you need to lead your families. You need to leave to, to really lead your players, your departments, even your community. Everyone is looking for something, and you play a role in each one of those, and sometimes a powerful role. And um, I would, I would really put again, I'm, I'm a great believer in writing things down. I'm sure many of the coaches feel the same way, but I'd love for you to commit that leadership intention to writing, and be as concrete and as specific as you possibly can. Reference your attitude, your your sense of patience, your caring, your sense of compassion for everyone that's going through this, whether it be players, family, relatives. And I want you to be authentic. This is not some fake document. I want you to feel it and, and really do everything you can, not to be kind of checked out, but to be fully engaged. Sometimes these storms, they just cause you to just go away. And you just, here we can't. If you're going to be here, we need to have you fully here, all in, in this storm. Mm -hmm. 
And I will tell you the most important resource, as I said before, that we have is our energy. You fight with your energy. You lead with your energy. So your energy, if it's calm and focused and positive and inspirational, you move their chemistry. You move the chemistry of everyone around you. And people will be attracted to you because you have, you're not some crazy uh, person with their, you know, their head in the clouds and all you see is rose colored glasses. You're, you're, you're grounded, mm-hmm. but you are going to lead through this crisis in a way that, you know, we need to have calm, clear, um, really believing people that we can, we're going to find answers to this. We will defeat this. So when everyone else, as I said, is panicking, angry, scapegoating, when uh, they're, you know, just persistently negative, you stand up and you look for something that you can do positively and you reward those who actually are looking for solutions real solutions and are really trying to find ways to contribute to the outcome that we're all looking for. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I want to say this, that never forget the power you have as a coach. You know, I, I talk about this all the time because you are um, a real influencer in people's lives. I can talk about the coaches in my life and the profound impact they've had on me. But the way you look, even the look on your face, the way you walk, the sound of your voice, the, the content of your, of your sentences and the words you use, the, the tone of everything you're delivering, um, they carry consequences. They, um, even the way you focus your eyes, everyone is watching. Mm-hmm. And this is all part of your leadership. So don't believe that, you know, all of these things don't make a difference because they do. They make a profound difference. I, I spent a lot of time working with some of the most amazing leaders in industry. And I try to help them understand what they can, these little things of what a profound difference that it can make. I, I love to use a four-dimensional model of leadership. And at the base is physical. And on top of that, it's kind of a pyramid. And on the base of that is emotional and then mental, then spiritual at the top, which for me is character. And at the base, you need to physically model health. You have to take care of yourself. You have to exercise. You have to eat right, sleep. You have to really model all the things that give you great energy so that you can fight. Emotionally, you need to really be engaged in the positive emotions and hope. Mentally, you need to be focused. You need to get your story straight. And then at the spiritual character dimension, the most important thing is you represent the highest level of character in everything you do. And that, to me, is the essence of leadership. So, you know, you're leading physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, and all of them are important. For me, as I'll talk about maybe a little later today, Mm -hmm. the most important of which is your character, the lead with your character. Yeah, no, we'll definitely return to that, Jim, but um, just want to talk a little bit about the topic of resilience. So as coaches um, were, I'm, I'm a former coach, so I say we, but uh, coaches are, are expected to build the resilience in, in those that they're coaching. 
Um, but we sometimes forget that we should also be building resilience in our in ourselves to to handle the ups and downs of of the season and, and coaching in general and and be sure that we're modeling that resilience to our teams at all times. So do you have any steps or, or takes on on how coaches can build resilience in themselves? Yeah, we've at the Institute, the Human Performance Institute, we spent a lot of time researching and trying to help people build this capacity, whether it be Navy SEALs or mm. Blue Angels precision flying teams, these elite anti-terrorist units with the FBI, and then all these athletes and executives and nurses and doctors. And here's what we found. I mean, it's really, I had no sense of where this would all take us when we, we had a very large data base from which to draw insights. And we found that the most powerful asset we all have for building resiliency is a strong sense of purpose. We, we're not going to be resilient unless we really have a why to do so. It's much easier just to fall and be broken and hang out. And we, we, need, a, we need to really understand the power that purpose plays in our life. If you need to come back, you'll get back. You're back on that horse. It, you got bucked off, thrown down, beaten up. And you have to have a reason for getting back up that's really profound or you simply won't do it. Right. The more your core purpose for living, we learn, is beyond your own self-interest. You'll get back up and fighting again when it's not so much about you. When you're fighting for something or someone much bigger than yourself. And uh, we, uh, we sometimes get all worried about ourselves. But the more we realize that we've got to be here for others. you got to be here for your team and that they have to be there for each other. And they got to bounce back from this because everyone is watching and it becomes contagious mm -hmm. when people are not, when they're checked out, when they don't come back, um, everyone notices and it actually has an impact on everyone's sense of confidence and, and a sense of um, belief that we can overcome this. Nietzsche made this comment, the Frederick Nietzsche is a German, very famous German philosopher. He said, he who has a why can bear almost any how and you know we really need to understand the importance of that why and, and what it is for each one of us and victor frankel you know he said that pain is inevitable in life it's just the way it is mm -hmm. but suffering suffering is actually optional and it's optional because if you have a purpose a reason to suffer you know it, it's it's digestible it's pain but it's not suffering mm -hmm. suffering is pain without a purpose, without meaning. So we need to work very hard on the purpose for our life, and we must uh, constantly rework that, make it very, very powerful and accessible, and use that as the cornerstone for going into adversity and remembering that adversity is how we grow. Without stress in our lives, we cannot grow. We're not going to have the capacity. So avoiding stress, avoiding Anything that's uncomfortable will not take us to the next level or, or whatever capacity you have will be unmoved. And eventually we will find a
No, and it kind of comes back to to the first question and and about the power of story. And so, would you encourage again coaches to write down if if they're unsure as to what their why is or what their purpose is to to sit down and write that out and try and clarify that, or is it working with a, a mentor or another coach to try and get to that understanding or or a loved one? What what would be your recommendation as to how they really drill down on what their purpose and why is? You know, it's it's the same process for everyone. This is not something that can be gifted to you. You can't inherit it. You have to just go into this very personal space mm-hmm. and try to figure out, you know, what what is life all about for you? And you got to do the heavy lifting. You can't really, you can't make this stuff up. You can't fill out a form and then hope it's all going to be there. It's a very, it's, a, it's really a powerfully, um, life-changing process, but it doesn't occur easily. And it sometimes takes a long time to get it just the way you want it. And you're always working on it. Right. So I would encourage coaches to, to have, to do it yourself. And uh, a lot of you will begin to realize that you went into coaching. The why of your coaching was never to win. I mean, winning is a nice thing, but you actually wanted to make a difference, a positive difference in the lives of your players. Mm-hmm. And a storm like this, um, it, it can be leveraged so many ways to help them grow up and become stronger human beings. Because we don't become all the things in your life that have pushed you the most, have helped you the most, if you've really healed from them, have helped you the most to believe in yourself and have confidence and be able to be prepared for the next major crisis. So. Um, I would encourage all the coaches to do that for themselves and have their players do it. And then to really look at what's the reason they're playing tennis. Why are you doing this? Why are we working so hard? What are we trying to do here? And ultimately I'm hoping that they will find like we have with all the players we have worked with is that they're really, they're trying to, you know, become a better human being through this to actually be more prepared to contribute more to others lives, to be an inspiration to others whatever it is, but it's probably beyond their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I want to get into the, that a little bit more. You mentioned the the wins and losses and, and also character. So, you know, like you said, a lot of coaches were attracted to college coaching because they wanted to help their players develop character, prepare them for life. Um, but I feel like a lot of coaches, they end up getting into the profession and then stressing a huge amount about their win-loss record rather than whether or not they're building character in place in players, which is obviously a little less tangible than their, their win-loss record. But how do you encourage coaches to be maybe a little less concerned about their wins and, and increase their concern about their athletes' character development? It's a great question. Um, you know, I wrote an entire book on this issue. It's called The Only Way to Win. Mm-hmm. You know, it's again, it's a lot of this came as a surprise to me. I mean, I never had any, nothing in my training as a psychologist led me in this direction. Absolutely nothing. It took over two decades of data collection. And we had, at that time, over 300,000 clients at the Human Performance Institute to is a living laboratory mm-hmm. to uh, draw insights from and to track them and to see what, what were the very, we did so much testing. And then we tried to track their progress over years. And I'll tell you, when I, when I 
the most profound insight that we gained, and I'm embarrassed to say it actually, because it seems so logical, but we had no we had no data to support it. It was just, you know, it's not where we all were thinking. Certainly I was not thinking. The most profound insight that I received in my entire life in this research world was that health ignites performance. Mm-hmm. Health ignites performance. And basically I began to realize that everyone in the performance business, including certainly all your coaches, are in the health business. Mm-hmm. And I learned this, that the healthier a player is as a person, the healthier the coach is as a person, the better he or she will perform over time. And that health is physical, it's emotional, it's mental, and spiritual, what I call character health. And all those dimensions, what I realized all these years with all these players going back you know, into the 70s, that all I was doing and all we did for all those years at the Institute was getting people healthier. And that the more we got them to, to sacrifice some aspect of their life and made them, you know, you know, really unhealthy, anything we did to the extent of them outside the range of what we might say was good for them as a person, physically, emotionally, mentally, or, or spiritually, was going to come back and haunt the process. So, we, uh, we also learned, and this one was the last, and for me, the most important finding, and it's changed the rest of my life, for sure, in terms of what I'm focusing on. My most recent book is Leading with Character. It's a two-volume series that I'm just publishing, and it's all this information and all the things we learn about the importance of character, the trajectory of your life in terms of character, um, and, and what that means in your ability to perform. Um, and character health is more important than any other <clears throat> dimension we can focus on, more important than physical, emotional, mental. And uh, that for me was like, <clears throat> how could that be? I mean, it's just, I mean, they're all important and they're all connected. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have character, and I like to, break character into two distinct categories. One is performance character, and that's those strengths of character that help you perform well in any competitive situation. And then there's this ethical and moral character, which uh, helps, which really defines how you treat other people. And um, performance character strengths are things like discipline, being focused, positive, resilient, and so forth. And the traits of of moral and ethical character are things like integrity, honesty, being trustworthy, dependable, grateful, being kind. And, uh, you know, for me, what we began to realize, we did a six-year experiment. And we took, we have a junior academy. And... We put all the emphasis simply on character, performance and ethical, moral character, and never talked about winning ever. And uh, I have to tell you, the results were so exciting. At the end of that six years, we had players going to every, they got scholarships into every major school. And these were just local kids in our neighborhood. We didn't go out and recruit anybody. Mm. 
And we, we number one, number two for Harvard, number one, number two for West Point. I mean, these are really top schools and they did amazingly well. But for me, the most important thing is they become, they, they arm these players with extraordinary gifts of strength that they'll carry for the rest of their lives. So, mm. um, you know, and I, I have to say that when you're, when you want to teach something, character, you know, coaches have to be what they want their players to become. Mm-hmm. And if they want being honest and fully engaged and disciplined and grateful and humble, if you want that in your players, confident, you've got to model it in yourself or it just doesn't come through. It just doesn't manifest very well. So, you know, there are lots of ways to win. Let's just face that. Yeah. Lots of ways to win. You can cheat your way to the top. You can shortcut. You can recruit your way to the top. You can um, manipulate the schedules. You can, um, you know, your lineup. I mean, there are a lot of ways to win. Mm-hmm. But I really believe the most the, the most important consideration is that you win with character. That's the only way to win. And you lose with character, period. And you you put your, you know, you put yourself on the line because that's what you stand for. And I think that's what you wanted when you, when you got into coaching. Right. Right. So can you provide any examples of coaches? You, you don't have to name names, but that were maybe able to make that shift deep into their career where they had been so focused on winning and um, maybe did take some of those shortcuts, like, like you mentioned. Um, but were able to <laughs> revisit the way they were operating and shift their their attention and focus back to the character development of their athletes and proceed with their career and still have the same level of of winning say or maybe the winning increased so uh so concerned uh, i was about what i saw happening and a lot of it was in college tennis I saw, you know, I had a lot of the coaches come to me and tell me stories that were horrifying in terms of what they were doing to win. And they felt that they couldn't win unless they did the same. Mm-hmm. So we developed a two and a half day course at the Institute for coaches that focused, I mean, almost a hundred percent on character development of players. And I have to say the feedback we've received from those kids, these coaches came from all over the United States. Some came from all over the world. And the mindset shift from winning to character development was a big one for every one of them. I mean, it's like, what? What are you talking about here? And, uh, and then they went out and we asked them to give us feedback. Um, and we began to realize that their experience were though were similar to those of our own academy, that the health of the person really ignited the best in their competitive profile. That if you really concern yourself, not so much for the athlete, but you're more concerned for the athlete as a person and how they're doing as a human being. And you're concerned about them physically, emotionally, mentally, and you want them to develop into an extraordinary person of strong character. That that something bleeds through the lines there. If it's real and you actually manifest that every day you're with them, um, I will tell you, it's, uh, it's one of the most powerful forces that you'll ever have on a team. 
Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to tell you a story real quickly that it's a very special story. I won't give you the person's whole name, but some of you may have met him, but at our tennis academy, we had a young tennis pro named Ignacio. And uh, he was in his late 20s. He was an accomplished player and an excellent coach. Everybody loved him. All of our players just thought he was the greatest. And one day, Ignacio came to work and announced that he had a very aggressive form of brain cancer. And, I mean, we were all like, he's the, he's the, he looks like he's coming right out of GQ magazine. He's handsome. He's healthy. It's like he's the last person you'd ever think would have any kind of health issue like that. And that he said he had to immediately undergo surgery, and the odds were very slim that he would survive. And then he said, you know, something like this. He said, don't worry about me, everyone. He says, I know I, I miss all of you. I will miss you, and I hope you'll miss me. But I will get through this, and I will be back. Mark my words. He said, I will use all my mental toughness training that I've learned here, and I am going to defeat this cancer. And uh, within just a few months, Ignacio was back on the courts again, teaching. Everyone was just overwhelmed with joy. He did what he said he was going to do, and as he promised. Mm-hmm. And so we were all very happy. And then out of nowhere, the brain cancer returned. And again, back into surgery, chemo, radiation, the whole thing. And before going into recovery, now the Odds were even worse that he would survive this. Again, he promised to everyone, came to the courts and said, listen, I will be back. I will be teaching again, and I'll be back soon. I'm getting stronger, not weaker. This, this cancer that I'm fighting, I will lick it. I'm going to make, even though I don't care what the odds are. And he fulfilled that promise against all odds. No one can understand how he did it. And I'm happy to report that Ignacio is completely healthy today after five years, no sign of any cancer. And he attributes his, his, his success to his toughness, to his strength of character. And, uh, you know, his strength of character was as brilliant as the morning sun. Mm. He, uh, he felt like all of the work he'd done with all the players on their toughness and character helped him build his character and carried him through this very challenging time. And he's a tremendous inspiration to all of us. He continues to be a great inspiration to me. Mm, that's great. Oh, it's a, a really powerful story. And, and, uh, and that's the thing, like you're, you're trying to get across as well, that we're all learning from, from one another, that the coaches can also learn from their players and players, like you said, looking up to the coach and, and ultimately are trying to learn the most from the coach. But um, it, it can work both ways through, throughout that process if it's, uh, if it's done well. But, um, you know, a, a lot of coaches talk about the reasons a player is losing and, and they'll maybe talk about technique or tactical decisions or maybe they're not fit enough um but my experience is that most of the time it stems from the mental side of things and and the tactics and the technical might actually be wrapped up um in some say mental blocks or reluctance to to make those changes that might be connected to some other issue in their life but i feel like 
you know, very few coaches are, are willing, or tennis coaches at least, are willing to really delve deep into the mental side of the game and, and develop their expertise in this area. Maybe it's just a little too, you know, uh, out there and, and not tangible enough. But but why maybe is that? Is that your experience with tennis coaches? And, and how would you encourage coaches to maybe develop their skill set in this area of player development? You know, the mental side is by far the most mysterious side of training for coaches. It's frustrating because mostly because you can't see inside the heads of players. And so it's almost like we know something's going on and that there's this whole thing. If you're not mentally together, it's kind of an indictment of who the person is and all these archaic, you know, um, kind of old, uh, stories that we have kind of circulated around. There's a head case. Oh, they're never going to get it. And there isn't much you can do. I've done everything, but they're a head case and I can't do anything about it. It's, he's, he's above my pay grade, his brain. I can't figure out his brain or her brain or whatever. And, uh, you know, I we hear that all the time, but here are some things to think about. Um, you know, there are markers, there are tells that even though we can't see inside their brains, there are things we can work with that are very obvious and very tangible. Um, one of them is attitude. I mean, this is so obvious for everyone. You can, you can see it. You can measure it um, uh, from your own perspective as a coach. A player can rate themselves. You can also rate energy and effort, which is direct result of that's what happens when people start becoming very mentally strong, like Rafa Nadal. He has learned to give his absolute full and best effort, full engagement until the last point. He never, ever withdraws effort because he's not doing well, disappointed, or fears he's going to lose. Mm-hmm. A person's body language, it's always evident. It's seen, you can see it on tape, you can watch it, and you can coach that. And when you coach the body, there are many ways to work with mental toughness. One is outside in and one is inside out. So if you work from outside in, you simply get their body language, their self-talk and public talk more aligned with what you know is going to help them be a better competitor. Their between point rituals, the time they take between points and how they ritualize, that's all very observable. That's from the outside in. Their ability to manage mistakes, you can see quickly, do they hang on those mistakes? Do they always, you know, kind of walk away and are kind of damaged to after that for a few points or a game? Mm-hmm. And then you can see their character. It's very visible on court, how they treat their opponents, their cheating, their sportsmanship, their team spirit. When they're not doing well, where do they go? They go hide. All of these things are observable. If you want to work just with the observable, work with those. And then if you want to work with the interior landscape, there are lots of things you can do there. For me, the most important thing they can do is write. Write out what their commitments are, their goals, their game plan, um, how they want to speak to themselves when they're in crisis and adversity. Get that private voice aligned with who they want to be with their best self. A lot of interior work. When you do both, huge things happen. And so it may seem mysterious and don't just as a coach, just because it seems outside your training 
coaches all need to be great. Um, you know, um, really uh, experts at how do you get into a, a person's mental and emotional um, really equipment and how, how to tweak it, how to improve them, how to get better, mm-hmm. how to become a stronger character-driven person. So uh, we all need a scorecard and uh, for our players. And that scorecard can be interior or external, or, or exterior or both. And I prefer both. Mm. And yeah, so like you talked about, coaches are maybe a little reluctant to to focus on that side of things at times, or or maybe give up too soon on it. But but also players as well are, are also uh, very reluctant to do the hard work on the mental side. They're they're used to putting in the physical work and and making little tweaks to their game and kind of going through that pain, but but um, aren't always willing to work hard on the mental side. But is there a a story you like to tell about a tennis player who? maybe you've worked with in the past who was a little skeptical up front in in doing that work with you but with time made some significant changes and and was evident to you and maybe others that saw the the this player kind of prepare to play and and also through their performances on the court again you don't have to mention names just interested in in hearing your perspective on it yeah i'd be happy to these and these are people that everyone knows so it's, and they most everyone knows that I'm working or have worked with them in some way over the years so you know um, I worked with Riley Opelka I still do and uh, I worked with him for a little over two years you know Riley towers over nearly everyone at almost seven feet tall <laughs> he is a force of nature um, Riley's mental game was pretty good except that his inner voice was it was a relentless critic um, his, um, you know, he had a, an established habit as a young player that he was unable to break. It was like how he competed. And, uh, it was, you know, even though he was quite certain that his private and public voices were, were really quite negative, there wasn't anything he could do about it. He just felt like this is who he was. This is who I really am. But it was quite clear that there was probably um, uh, a negative consequence, that this was not, it was really going to hurt his competitive play. Mm-hmm. So I asked Riley, I said, who do you admire most? Who would you be most like to be like as a competitor? And he quickly responds, Roger Federer, for sure. And then I asked him, when was the last time you saw Roger turn against himself the way you do? Um, when's the last time he started to berate himself and really both publicly and privately, you assume, when was the last time his answer was never. Mm-hmm. And when we started his ranking was about, was a little over 200 and he is now in the top 40. Well, I will tell you that a big part of his success is that he has completely reworked his inner voice. He is calmer, more focused, more confident. He's uh, more in control of every aspect of his game because he's not on this. He doesn't have to win two battles, one battle against himself and then one battle against the person on the other side. And he's, uh, he likes competing in that space because he spent so much energy believing that he had to beat the hell out of himself in order pre- to prevent that stupid mistake from occurring again. Mm-hmm. And this was accomplished by he constantly journaled uh, about who he wanted to be, 
and how he wanted to present himself as a competitor. And he did it over and over again. And we held, I held him accountable every single match. And uh, he set a goal before every match to present himself in that way. And when you put a lot of energy into something like that, it takes you away from your competitiveness. So at times, he didn't perform as well as he had wanted, but he held, he held the line. He forced his brain to deal with disappointment and mistakes and failures in a different way. He actually reworked his brain, his amygdala, his prefrontal cortex had to rewire a lot of that uh, really very problematic uh, coding, I call it, in his brain and and come up with something much more efficient, much more uh, positive. Mm. And he now is recognizing the benefits of that. Breaking old habits is not easy, but it's clearly, the, the brain is very plastic, and it's possible if one devotes disciplined energy, disciplined energy, and, and really puts themselves on the line with it. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about Riley, and, and his future is so much brighter now because he has decided to take, he decided to take that on, and he made it more important than winning, more important than anything, and it came a lot faster than he had thought. So, uh, you know, another, another great example of toughness is how people handle injuries. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with so many athletes over the years through their tragically difficult downtimes um, where, um, you know, they push you mentally and emotionally almost to your very limits. You know, you're either playing always hurt or... You don't know whether you should play or not play and should you have surgery or not. And mm-hmm. every time, you know, you just seem to be getting going, the injury comes back and now the surgeon wants to get a hold of you. And, you know, everyone remembers how Maria Sharapova struggled to serve after her shoulder surgery. Right. I mean, she had to retrain and relearn a very different service motion after that surgery, she couldn't serve the same and her muscles is almost like they lost their ability to execute the way they did because of the strengths and scar tissue and everything else. Before the surgery, she had one of the best serves in women's tennis for sure. And, you know, we all can remember Maria double falling after she came back from that surgery, 15, 18, 20, 24 times in a single match. And each time, if you remember, go back and look at the tapes, you would turn around, reset, never complain, never even look on her face that she was frustrated. And uh, it's so interesting that many of those matches where she double faulted 15 or 20 times, she actually won against good players. (laughs) You know, it was quite remarkable. It was a great statement about her and her toughness. She's one of the greatest competitors of all time in the women's game, for sure. And what she was doing was completely abnormal. You can't be a great a great player and be normal. What's normal is to you just go furious and to blame the damn surgery and mm. the surgeon and <laughs> blame life and all the things that you haven't got right for you that it's not fair. What's not normal is to hold your ground, still continue to believe that you're doing everything you can, let it go, 
and go do it again and double fold again <laughs> and then do it again. And, uh, you know, it's not normal to win four grand slam right. and to be number one in the world. You, ha- you can't be normal. You have to do what normal people can't do mm-hmm. with a rocket as well as emotionally and mentally. You have to be strong and you have to understand that that does not come easily. Right. So the commitment, her commitment was to never give less than 100% of her best effort, no matter what. And then when she retired, as she recently did, she knows there was nothing left. She used all the wick on her candle and she can retire knowing that was the best she could give. Mm. So both of those, are, I think, are pretty good examples. No, oh, fantastic examples. And obviously what makes college coaching unique is that you're, as a coach, you're, you're dealing with a, a team of, of individuals in an individual sport. And I think sometimes coaches, um, many of their struggles or worries or concerns that come in is when they've recruited a player who is really struggling to adopt, say, the team's culture and and the coach's leadership style that they've maybe worked with the same coach since they were nine years old. And and here they are all of a sudden thrown into a team situation where they're they're playing for something bigger than themselves and they're playing for a new coach who uh, who's maybe holding them uh, accountable to a to a different level because now the 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 coach is kind of paying the player or the university's paying the player whereas before the the player was was paying the coach and and um so it's it's often a whole new world and so how would you encourage um coaches to you know have these players um adopt their leadership style or or the team culture or any advice in that area because i know that's something that's always um that coaches are dealing with on a daily basis with new players you know this this issue that you raised is a really it's a real issue in the lives of coaches uh, it's very very uh, practical and it's it's a very tough one to deal with um but uh, you know here's what i would here's what i would say first i would say as a coach i want you really to think about describing in great detail the culture you want to create i mean get really get clear explain what what that means for everyone involved you want a culture and the power of a culture is absolutely amazing when a team finally gets it you don't even have to you know worry yourself about discipline or people going off and doing crazy dumb things at night or Mm -hmm. doing things that will ultimately hurt the team the culture is what actually binds people to the commitment to each other. And it's really not about themselves. They realize they've made a commitment to the team and it isn't even a commitment to the coach. It's a commitment to each other that we're going to do something today. We're going to, I mean, together, we're going to think or swim together. We're going to follow this and we're all in and everyone has to be aboard or you have to go somewhere else. You have to kind of jump in with both feet. And so, so you need to explain why you want this kind of culture. How is it that you come to this and what you believe to be the consequences of that culture? If we all, I mean, and then you have to, as a coach, you have to live that culture. You have to be that culture yourself. Mm -hmm. And this cannot be built in a lecture. It has to be built over some time. And everyone must be constantly, it's almost like an indoctrination process where you're asking the players for their voice and how did, what does this mean and what kind of discipline 
I want you to give me what you think the discipline is for the players who don't conform to this. Let's talk about it, and then I'm going to make the final decision. And uh, But you're really trying to build a, a culture based on trust, respect, character. Our goal here is to grow as human beings, to be better, not for ourselves, but for each other. We're going to build a team here that supports one another through good and through bad. If you have a bad loss, no one's going to hold you accountable for that unless you just give up and don't and you show a lot of emotion that just doesn't fit the culture we're trying to create. We want you to be strong for yourself, but strong, more importantly, for this team. And we all, every single one of us, is going to be held accountable to each other. So, and what happens when you get people aligned with a culture? It gives you goosebumps. You can feel it because the uh, the, um, the the real power doesn't come from you as a coach. What you did is created the culture, and now the culture is what really forms this incredible, um, really dynamic force that pulls everyone together, everyone trying to help each other. And when someone goes off the reservation, if their culture is strong enough, they'll pull them back, get them back in. And if someone is so disruptive to the culture, they either have to be put to the outside and given a chance to really get themselves together. Or they, And if they can't do that, then they just don't fit on that team. Because mm-hmm. it's really not about the individuals. It's about, and it's not about the win-loss records. It's about who are these young players becoming as human beings and how, how can they all become leaders in becoming stronger in building a culture that enables everyone to win, that allows us to be proud of what we've done, and every year we're going to get better. So this, uh, and you have your rules, you have your discipline, you have expectations, and uh, you never stop trying to build a perfect culture. You'll never get it 100%, but it's the culture that makes it all happen. And you have to model that every, every time you have any interaction on any level, every email, every voicemail, every communication in the locker room, the way you walk on the courts between matches, the way you present yourself as a coach during matches, your assistant coaches, if you have them, all of them have to be on the same page. And if you're not, that culture just continues to struggle and you really you really will find it uh, frustrating because we, but it will take time, but you have to be clear on what you want and get all the players to understand how this will be of such great value to all of them, not just on the team, but for the rest of their lives. Mm. Well, Dr. Lauer, I I think that's a a great place to end the conversation. I I really uh, got a huge amount out of that and I've no doubt our, our coaches did too. So thank you for giving up some time on a Sunday afternoon to uh, have this conversation with me. I'm excited to get it out to our coaches and and uh, continue this discussion with them here in the in the months to come. But uh, thanks for all you do for you tennis in general and, 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 and yeah. your support of college tennis too. So thank you. No, you're very welcome. My hope is, is this in some way will contribute to uh, their coaching career. It's just a tough time. I know they're in very tough waters right now. I wish them all the best, and I hope that this will give them something to think about. So when we're back in action again, we'll all be better. 
Definitely. We'll get there soon, let's hope. Thank you for listening, coaches. I hope you got something out of that. I know I definitely did. Um, We have many more great guests lined up for you in the weeks to come. Be well.